Hello to one talkie Kamlo Tangata Ote Moana from RNZ Pacific Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up in the Pacific uh, and targeting Australia, there is not just one syndicate. Transnational crime expert says record-breaking Pacific cocaine seizure is still just a drop in the ocean. Also, Japan's going to continue to say yes, it's safe, even in the face of evidence that it's not. An international law expert says Japan is trying to pass the buck for its planned nuclear wastewater dump and... The information is not really shared in a fluid manner, so it's hard to say how many sharks they've killed. The New Caledonian public is divided on shark culling measures after dangerous attacks. An expert in transnational crime and regional security says the record seizure of cocaine announced by New Zealand authorities on Wednesday, while significant, is still just a drop in the ocean. Over three tonnes of cocaine was picked up in international waters north of New Zealand through a joint operation last week involving police, customs and the Defence Force. Altogether, 81 bales of the drug were seized, weighing 3.2 tonnes, with an estimated street value of half a billion dollars. Police Commissioner Andrea Costa said the historic seizure would land a major financial blow to the illegal drug market. I spoke with a senior fellow in transnational crime and regional security at the ANU's Australian Pacific Security College, Jose Sosa Santos, about the situation. Well, from my uh, perspective and experience, this is this is a great success from from this joint operation by uh, you know New Zealand law enforcement and and uh, defence. Uh, and you know when we're talking about three point two tons of, uh, of of cocaine, um, so this it is definitely going to impact uh, what we what we believe is you know the largest um, syndicate uh, operating through the region. But we must remember that in the Pacific. Uh, and targeting Australia, there is not just one syndicate. So even though um, you know this is a large quantity um, of uh, of cocaine, uh, and the price in the Australian market, you know, is at uh, I think almost half a billion dollars. Um, at the point of origin, we're not looking at, uh, at that much. So it's not costing uh, as much for the the cartel itself uh, at point of origin uh, as it is to the importer. Um, you know, for the to the syndicates in Australia, uh, is this kind of, uh, of of amount going to have an impact? Definitely, uh, it's also going to uh, force these the, the the cartels and syndicates uh, to rethink uh, their their current tactics and operations. This tactic of uh, of dropping off the drugs within in inside the nets with buoyancy. Uh, uh, or, or floating uh, devices, and uh, and also with devices where, which uh, which they can then utilize to, to find them again. That's been utilized now for decades, and this is the first time where uh, you know law enforcement uh, and defense, you know, in the, in the Pacific region have been able to actually get a whole cache uh, of these drugs. You know, yeah, when we've always yeah. been washed up on when they are sort of drifted, uh, gone astray. It's always been the little packets and that that we've seen, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so this is, you know, this is uh, this. This sends a very strong message. So, what do we? So, what do we see from our side? Uh, are we going to see uh, the um, this cartel or other cartels uh, or syndicates uh, change the tactic, or are they going to simply stay with it, with a tried and true tactic, knowing that New Zealand or regional law enforcement 
uh, is now being more ag- agile and is and has become more um, more successful in their operations to to disrupt them. Mm. Now, um, there's been some talk about the the some of the questions were put about the the Clover logo, the the brand on these drugs. Is is the the brand on the drugs familiar to you in your research? Do you are you able to identify syndicates through that, or is that it just uh, the police commissioner was saying it changes every every now and again? It ch- it changes. It's uh, and it, it it changes depending on the batch. Uh, it changes depending on you know which sec uh, which uh, group of uh, or part of that cartel the the drugs originate from, or even it might even refer exactly to the um, uh, to the order. Of the drugs. Now they talked about it being a joint operation. Um, they they were obviously for operational reasons very scant on details about exactly how this was located. They suggested that the the reason they were involved in picking up the 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 cash was because they were the closest in terms of just their geographical location and and resources. How like in your sort of understanding, how would it be possible to locate such a complete stash this would have to be inside intel or something right i uh, know there's there, there are different ways um you know and, and there's uh you know, there's information that's that, that's of course that's open source um you know there's investigations you know there, there, there could be um you know as you said inside intel there could be you know ways to pick up on the frequency of uh, of, of, of the transponders there could be a myriad of different ways that they were able to get this intelligence what this showed is uh, since the New Zealand government took the step of making the uh, New Zealand Navy uh, have, have having part of its remit, its uh, operations in transnational, countering transnational crime, uh, as I see, this has definitely paid off, and this is what's shown. And it's, it's, you know, and I think it, uh, it definitely shows that you know, the agencies and 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 the defence worked well together. There, there would have had to have been you know, collaboration with regional or other partners, uh, law enforcement. Um, so you know, the way forward is definitely. Uh, you know, for us to be able to, you know, continue to disrupt the activities of, uh, of uh, criminal syndicates in the region is through cooperation, through, uh, you know, greater sharing of information. Uh, and, you know, as we, um, you know, we raised during our, um, our conference uh, last year, the Pacific Regional Law Enforcement Conference, by bringing all, you know, of the key agencies, all of the uh, ILVAs, and ensuring that we are all on the same page. You know, if we are on the front foot for once, mm-hmm. uh, let's maintain that momentum. An international law expert believes Japan is passing the risk of its upcoming release of treated nuclear wastewater into the ocean onto Pacific leaders. It follows a meeting in Japan between a Pacific Islands Forum delegation and the government of Japan where the Japanese Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, gave his assurance that Japan will not discharge over 1 million tonnes of wastewater from the damaged Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant until such time that it is verifiably safe to do so. Duncan Curry told Lydia Lewis, it's a lackluster outcome with Pacific nations stuck in between a rock and a hard place. I've been working on this issue with people in Korea for, oh, over a year now, and it really does seem increasingly apparent, apparent that the only way of stopping Japan from going ahead with its plans is by taking legal action. And uh, quite frankly, it's a rather simple action which needs to be taken, which is filing a case before the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. And uh, on the basis that 
Japan is not legally, and I think it's really clear that it's not legally permitted to cause this kind of pollution of the, both the high seas and of neighbouring countries, including the Pacific countries. So while it's really good news that the Pacific Island Forum is taking this very seriously and is engaging in discussions with Japan, unfortunately there's no indication that Japan is going to change its mind. And in fact, quite the opposite, they're going ahead, they're building the tunnels, they're building the infrastructure, and there's every indication that they do intend to go ahead. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important that the Pacific Island countries, and particularly those in the North Pacific, because that's where the radiation is likely to end up, take the necessary steps to actually make sure this doesn't happen. I mean, the Federated States of Micronesia, the president, uh, Mr Panuelo, has come out last week and said that he completely trusts Japan and has no reservations about this nuclear waste disposal at all. What was your reaction to that? Well, unfortunately, the science isn't there. You know, the science, um, we do know that there can be cumulative effects of radiation in marine life. What we do know that Japan has not carried out the kind of research and test that it needs to have carried out on on the marine life, on, again, accumulation, you know, what happens when the radiation sediment and so on, and, and what happens when it goes through the food chain. So none of us can confidently say, and including Japan, can confidently say this will not affect the either the marine life or indeed even ultimately end up in humans that may end up eating the marine, the, the, the seafood. You know, I was in Korea just before Christmas, and it was very, very clear that, Jap- that sorry, that South Korean co- consumers are extraordinarily concerned about this. You know, surveys have shown that over 90% of South Korean seafood consumers would not buy fish that could have been contaminated by this pollution. And uh, I think that people will find increasingly that this is a widespread concern. I spoke with TEPCO and they maintain that this is going to be safe. It's not necessarily safe right now, but by the time this wastewater is released, it will be safe. Do you believe them? Well, uh, firstly, they have absolutely no intention of removing the tritium in the seawater, and that is is radioactive. And again, that accumulates in seafood. We do know that from the very few studies that have been carried out on tritium. Uh, we also know that there'll be other um, radioactive substances in, in that water. We know that the the uh, t- treatment that they've been carrying out, called the ALPS treatment, has not been successful and the water has had to be retreated. So unfortunately, the facts just do not um, bear that kind of um, bland assurance. I mean, if... If Japan had done what it needs to do, which is carry out a full environmental impact assessment, carrying out studies on marine life, remember this release is going to be for over 30 years, so these have got to be long-term studies. Um, If that kind of studies had been done, then I think we'd be having a different conversation. What we do know, for example, is um, recent correspondence with the International Atomic Energy Agency showed that um, Japan has only done any studies on three species, um, you know, a flatfish, I think it was, a uh, a species of crab and a, um, a, and a species of seaweed. And, you know, this is just not good enough. 
PIF has sent out a statement saying it welcomes the Japanese uh, Prime Minister's assurance that Japan will not discharge the nuclear wastewater until such a time that it is verifiably safe to do so. What do you make of that statement? A bit vague? It's vague, but the question is who's done that verification? The studies that the International Atomic Energy Agency have been carried out are simply studies on the um, dose, what's called dose response relationship with the with, with some marine life, and that is not what we're looking for. What we need to know is that what happens when the these radioactive substances accumulate in the in the, the fish in, in in the marine life. And the, the other point to bear in mind is that there is an easy alternative here. TEPCO can acquire more land build more tanks and tritium, which again is the main radioactive substance here of of immediate concern, um, only has a relatively short half-life of 12 years. So the longer it's stalled, the less of a threat it is. So the safest thing to do and the sensible thing to do is simply keep on storing it. The reason I won't do that is it's simply cheaper to discharge to the Pacific than it is to um, explore these alternatives. Recent shark culling in New Caledonia has divided public opinion in the French territory. Three four-metre-long tiger sharks have been killed by local authorities after two recent attacks, including one where a woman was mauled by a bull shark in Numea's most popular swimming beaches. With injuries to her hands, thighs and back, she was taken to hospital in a serious condition. Jan Kohot has more. Since the attack of a boy in 2019, the Numea Council removed a tiger shark and a bull shark from its protected species list as part of a wide-ranging scheme to reduce dangerous shark attacks. However, many wildlife conservation advocates have fought to keep the sharks from getting killed. The head of WWF New Caledonia, Mark Oremus, says the measures used by the Numea Council lack direction and transparency. The information is not really shared in a fluid manner, so it's hard to say how many sharks they've killed since the start of this shark crisis. There doesn't seem to be a defined strategy. This is why this all seems inefficient, useless and counterproductive. After two recent shark attacks occurred within a week of each other, local authorities closed all beaches in the capital until further notice. The Numea Council says they have ordered another round of shark culling. Joint CEO of Numea Council, Philip Jusiak, says they will only kill bull sharks of two metres or more and tiger sharks of four metres or more in the area of the attack. There is no set number. It is completely random. It either bites or it doesn't. Instead, we restrict ourselves on the number of days after the attack because we know that the animals move. As well as wildlife conservationists, the shark culling does not sit well with indigenous canics. On Lethal Island, for example, there remains a strong sense of spiritual ancestry with the sharks. Although many people spearfish on the island, the fishermen say they never experience any attacks. Chief of the village of Drehu, Sineko Wate, told La Première they do not hunt sharks and they respect that the ocean is their domain. For me, the shark is like a spirit. The shark is our grandfather, it's our ancestor. The local fishermen here never hunt sharks. When I go fishing and I see a group swimming, I simply change spot and go somewhere else.
The WWF's Mark Oremus says the shark debate is a tedious one that has been going on for years in New Caledonia. He says closing a few beaches and killing a few sharks will not solve anything because it is a huge ocean. Oremus says it will be more useful to promote awareness about safety in the water and to educate people about sharks. A conservationist is calling on the Fiji government to revoke a lease for a major development that threatens one of Suva's last remaining mangrove forests. The project by Chinese developers Tianlun Investment Limited aims to build a hotel, marina and apartment complex on an area that includes the mangroves. The proposed project named Fiji's Tianlun is estimated to cost about 300 million US dollars. Reverend James Bagwan says community consultation has been delayed and an environmental assessment has not been completed. Mr. Bagwan says he's just one of many people in the community opposing development. The proposed project was going to basically envisage the removal of the last part of the mangroves that were still surviving in the area. And with its plan for marina would also be um, doing some major work in the uh, in the bay itself, Lothala Bay, which is part uh, of which Suva Harbour forms a part. The mangrove area, uh, mangrove land is state land, state mangrove land. Um, and because it's sort of off from the main road, it's kind of out of sight, which sometimes means, you know, out of sight is out of mind. As we continued the, you know, the discussions, the conversations amongst various concerned stakeholders, uh, residents in the area, the uh, Suva Harbour Foundation, um, and other concerned citizens uh, in various fora of discussion, a couple of us on uh, early Sunday morning before church went uh, into the Lavetti Creek, which uh, is basically the mouth for this particular mangrove area, and, and went to investigate exactly what was at risk. What we saw in terms of the size of the uh, mangrove forest, the maturity of the, the mangrove trees, the huge biodiversity, and interestingly enough, the fact that the mangrove forest or reserve has already been decimated by 50% for another development which was approved about uh, 10 years ago and has been constantly working. And that work has resulted in uh, the narrowing of the creek in some places. So uh, when we have heavy rain coupled with high tide, some of the streets in that area actually flood and we have homes that get flooded. Monday was a, uh, a good example of that. Monday and Tuesday where we had heavy rains and some of the area was, was actually being flooded. And what are you calling on the Fijian government to do? What we uh, basically uh, are looking at is firstly the, the, com- the community consultation and the environmental impact report uh, has not been completed. And so the, the community consultation was postponed to, uh, to last night and then um, early this week we received notice of it being postponed yet again. So there's no clear understanding of when these consultations and the, uh, what, what the environmental impact assessment will look like. So that's one concern. The second is that there has been no other consultation with residents or landowners in the area, and that is a, a major issue. But when we look at the documents of the project, which have been um, sent to stakeholders, 
the lease is an initial, as they usually do in Fiji, it's an initial five-year lease of state land and uh, state mangrove reserve with a uh, potential for a 99-year lease on approval of environmental impact assessments, etc. So because it is state land, we are calling on the government basically to revoke this lease. It expires in October this year, the initial five year lease expires in October this year. So we're saying either they let that expire uh, or revoke that, but to ensure that the 99-year lease is not given to this um, this project. And the reason is, despite the various designs in their proposals, um, it does not look realistic in terms of being able to maintain the mangrove. It does not look realistic in terms of being able to protect the coastal and uh, immediate um, foreshore and ocean area. Um, And uh, we're concerned, one, about the biodiversity, two, about livelihoods of people who forage the area and fish in the area. And so these are the major concerns that we have. A bill to introduce caning as a form of punishment is stirring public debate on Guam. Formally introduced to Guam Senate on the 27th of January, the bill proposes judicial caning as punishment for people convicted of violent crimes. The bill's father, Senator Dwayne San Nicholas, who was elected in the U.S. Territory's gubernatorial elections last year, says caning will curb Guam's growing crime rate. Caning is considered to be inhumane by 173 countries in the United Nations. Our reporter, Finau Punua, spoke with Senator San Nicholas about his bill. This bill you're introducing in Guam, could you describe it for our audience? Our, our island has been, uh, you know, starting to go wayward, and it's we, we're, we're experiencing a lot of crime, especially violent crimes. And we, I promised during my campaign that, uh, you know, that I, I, I would address the crime issue. And so I searched uh, pretty much the whole world looking for, you know, what what we could use uh, here on Guam, and uh, I found the answer in Singapore. Uh, corporal punishment for for criminals. This um, caning is it for specific crimes? Uh, yeah. Well, what we did was we left uh, we left it open for the judiciary to decide. You know what kind of uh, how they would like to apply it. However, what we did was we added um, a provision in the law where violent crimes would receive the maximum amount of caning, which is twenty four. And. Why do you think this is more effective than uh, incarceration and heavy fines? Well, you know, we. Uh, what, what I think uh, for for me is, uh, I think, um, you know, the perpetrators, the criminals, uh, you know, that's what they have a lot of. There's a lot of time on their hands. In our in our own criminal system, uh, especially in our incarceration, there is really no form of uh, of rehabilitation. You can put somebody in a uh, in jail and uh, let let him uh, linger there for a while, but he really isn't learning his lesson. And I think uh, if we exact some kind of uh, physical punishment, physical pain, it's a deterrent. It would help deter crime. You know, people would think twice before they do something, and uh, it would also help cut down on our on our prison population. As we see it right now, I think we're about double the capacity of of our of our uh, allotted uh, jail space. What's your response mm-hmm. to the to the critics of your bill? Well, I've always mentioned that I'm always open. I was, I'm was i always open to suggestions 
and, and still to this day, I still haven't gotten any good uh, suggestions on how we can move forward in, in preventing crime and, and exacting a harsher penalty on, uh, on criminals. What we've been doing in the past is we constantly give them time. We, give them, we, we let them serve long prison sentences, but why does our crime continue to rise? And so, you know, there's, there's something that needs to be done. We need to address it. And, but at least here on Guam, we got everybody talking about the crime issue. And just the other, maybe a couple of weeks ago, we had some, uh, someone break into a, an elderly uh, gentleman's home and beat him with a hammer. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a horrible thing to have happen to, you know, to a loved one. And uh, how, uh, how, how do you administer justice in that case? We need to be tough. We need to be courageous. We need to be brave. And we, we cannot keep coddling our, our, our criminals. Here on Guam, it's almost, it seems like it's lawlessness and, and we're being laughed at by the criminals because we have no courage to be tough and be strong and, uh, and, and initiate these programs that would actually help our community. So that's what I, have, that's what I would have to say to them. Guam's justice system, is it the same as the United States? Yes, sir. Yes, it's just the same as the United States. And, and so our premise was if in the United States, there are 19 states that have corporal punishment legal to punish uh, school-aged children. Fifteen of those states actually do corporal punishment. And we see that uh, if corporal punishment is, is permissible in schools to... to uh, uh, rectify the wrong of a school-aged child, I'm pretty sure it would be good enough to rectify a, 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 an adult uh, found guilty of a, of a heinous crime. The Oceania Football Confederation and the Asian Football Confederation have signed an agreement that will see more matches between countries from the two FIFA regions. The Memorandum of Understanding, or MOU, was signed in Bahrain during the Asian body's annual congress. A joint statement said the MOU would result in high-level competition for men's and women's teams and the exchanging of knowledge, experience and resources. Craig Stephen talked to the OFC's General Secretary, Frank Castillo, who represented the OFC in Bahrain, to find out more about the exciting development. So we have an excellent relationship with the Asia Football Confederation. And uh, so we have decided to work uh, closely together. So we sign an MOU. So the MOU has uh, two components. The first one is a high-level competition. So we are thinking, for instance, to organize friendlies for national teams, for men. We also think about creating new competitions at the club level. So you have probably heard that uh, we'll have a professional league by 2025. And it could be, for instance, the two winners of the Asian Champions League with our Super League. And then for our Championship and Champions League, or FC Champions League, it could be the winner and the second, the runner, uh, with the two from the AFC Cup. Uh, for the women, it will be only at the national team. Huh? So it's uh, also friendlies that we'll organize uh, between national teams from OFC and national team from uh, AFC. And the second component, it's more capacity building because you know that we want to have this professional league and we want to become more professional. So we need to develop the entire uh, uh, scope of football. 
So it will be an exchange of uh, knowledge and experience and resources. And it's, uh, for instance, by uh, attending workshops in Asia uh, about uh, development, about competitions, about coaching, refereeing, education, legal communication. So the entire scope of football. Okay, that that's quite comprehensive. There's quite a lot in there. Um, let's just focus first and of all on the matches between the international sides, uh, yep. men's and women's. So would that mean, say, for example, that um, uh, uh, maybe Solomon Islands might play in perhaps China or Japan? Yes, it could be that. And uh, the, uh, the purpose of this MU is that we pay only the flights and they cover all the, the costs uh, uh, in, in, inside the country. Okay, so, so accommodation, meals and transportation. All right. So do you expect these matches to happen um, in Pacific countries or in Asia? Uh, yes, and uh, oh, it could be also the reverse. Uh, but, uh, you know, it will be more interesting to send our team in Asia. Uh, they may be very interesting, AFC, to come for the futsal and beach soccer, because I think we have like a strong team. But for football, yes, it, it will be probably more to send the team in Asia. Okay, I mean, it certainly sounds like an, an exciting adventure, and, and would would I, I, yeah, um, I mean, presumably this um, would would be a, a great help for uh, Pacific teams to strength to, to get to improve their standards. Correct, and 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 you know, it's because of this excellent relationship that we have uh, uh, since 2018, the OFC president met with the AFC president, and the AFC president said, "Okay, we are going to help you. You know that uh, we are the smallest confederation uh, in the world." And, uh, and we are very happy that we have this kind of relationship with AFC. Now, when do you expect these uh, matches to happen? Uh, probably next year, and not this year, because we have a, a full calendar this year. But we will try to get to some friendlies for next year. And uh, after, for the competition for clubs, it will be more, let's say, more 2025 and 2026, and, and, and after. And um, do you have in mind at this stage sort of like which teams might be involved? But like I said, for the clubs, uh, it will be normally, for instance, the, the winner and the runner-up of our uh, Super League that could compete with the winner of the AFC Champions League. But we will keep our Champions League as well, and we could have the winner of the Champions League and the runner-up uh, uh, competing against the winner and the runner-up of the AFC Nations Cup. Is it a possibility, perhaps, of maybe um, beyond these international friendlies, um, the possibility of, say, like a, a, a tournament that might involve Pacific and Asian teams? Uh, yes, it's also part of this uh, MOU, actually. Uh, we could potentially include a team from, the, uh, from Asia in our competition, current competition, and uh, AFC could do also the same. But we need to be careful. It should not be like a qualifier for any World Cup. Okay, all right. And now you mentioned um, the, um, the, there was plans for a new OFC professional league. Can you maybe tell me about, a bit about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a big, big project for us. Uh, you know that we are the only confederation without a professional league. And uh, since 2019, the OFC president said, OK, uh, we cannot live uh, and, and, and operate in an amateur environment. So we have been working really hard since 2019. And uh, recently, in November, the executive committee decided that to have this professional league by 2025. So uh, uh, we are working on that. So it's very ambitious. Uh, we plan to have a, a minimum of seven teams and maybe teams uh, uh, overseas, like uh, uh, beyond the Pacific. But I cannot tell you more about that. But this will be a game changer for football. That's Tangata Oti Moana. For this week, there's more on our website, rnzi.com.